Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. And we're back with exciting news. Yes, we are now professional. We have a sponsor for the show, which is awesome for us, but even more awesome for you. Indeed, because who doesn't love a sweet, sweet online shopping discount code? And in this case, it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep. From our good friends, Prism Coffee, who are four Canberra lads who I've known for a while. Uh, who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee so john how do the people get this amazing <laughs> discount you speak of go to their website which is prismcoffee.com.au pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got you can get it ground you can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own they've got all of the options uh, and then you use the code PeakSpeakCoffee in the discount bit of the shopping cart and uh, you'll get a sneaky 10% off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time I don't remember exactly what it is but I think they express post everything so hopefully quickly perfect amazing well, and that's it. Without further ado, here's the episode. Yeah. Presented Enjoy. by Thomas Lilly and John Sarah and Baby Cry in the Background, not included. Now okay, so, beef ribs. Tell me about beef, beef ribs. ribs. I'm cooking beef ribs. Uh, I got some beef ribs from a guy named Danny, who's a friend of mine, uh, owns a cafe in, in Braddon, uh, and owns a company called Old Girls Canberra, where he gets... Uh, sources, meat from local farmers, things like that. Uh, so I've got a couple of... I had some like ribeye on the bone from him a couple of like, a few months ago, but it was from like a nine year old ex dairy cow. Yeah. Uh, so it's like real tender and just generally delicious. Uh, it was wet aged. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I got a rack of uh, beef short ribs to do that I'm going to do on the Weber today. Uh, yeah, that's that's my Friday plans is hang out with my son and cook beef ribs. Sounds <laughs> it's gonna perfect. be great. I did my first beef ribs two weeks ago. Yeah, how did you uh, do it? I'd never done it ago. I've done it before. Well, it actually ended up being a little bit of a disaster. Didn't didn't come out as perfectly as I'd hoped because the plan was to uh, sous vide over overnight uh, yep. for for about thirty six hours and then just finish it off on the on the smoker yeah um, but within the first two hours the the bag i was using exploded Ugh. Uh, so they got waterlogged and rather than doing it overnight i put them in the fridge overnight which would have screwed everything up and then i just smoked them uh, for six or seven hours the next day um, and they still turned out okay they just mm. weren't as perfect as i'd 
you know, yeah, had, yeah. had in my head. Yeah, no, I know the feeling. I um, I had the same thing happen with brisket recently, uh, and it, again, it turned out okay, but it's just a pain in the ass. I now like double bag anything that I put in the CV for more than like an hour, because otherwise, yeah, you just run that risk. The brisket I did, I triple sealed the bags, like I put three individual seal lines on all of them, and then the sides burst. Mm. <laughs> I was like, motherfuckers. Uh, um. When I was yeah. going through uni, I first heard about this, like the slow food movement. This is like yeah. in 2007. Um, and I was like, you know what? That's, that's exactly what I'm about. Like I grew up with, you know, my, uh, my family's Lebanese, my grandmother's Lebanese. So used to spend ages with her watching her cook and, and like mm. you know, picking up things from her. And I, when I cook something, I like to do it from scratch as much as I can, like yep. go out of my way to do stuff that doesn't need to be done. Like make yeah, my yeah. own flatbread rather than buying some that would be equally as good. Yeah. Uh, just because I don't know, it's just a labor of love. Yeah. And man. I think, um, when I started playing around with smoking stuff, um, that was already pre-built into my head like I, I knew it was going to take time and effort and monitoring yeah. and I think the the movement of people getting so excited about smoking stuff um, and uh, people rushing out and buying smokers and, and playing around with it you learn very quickly that it's it's a labor of love for sure but it is an extremely frustrating and tedious labor of love like dude i had this discussion with <laughs> Stefan the other day while i was bitching to him about how horrifically painful the cook i did for the gym recently was <laughs> it was like the worst most infuriating frustrating cook i've ever done i did a whole brisket and the bags burst while i was sous veeing it so i had to go out and buy more brisket to make sure that i didn't run out of brisket i cooked pork on the Weber for pulled pork, but didn't account for the fact that Canberra's fucking cold during the day. And so my Weber never really got to the right temperature. Oh. And so it barely cooked the pork. So that was supposed to be Friday for a Saturday lunchtime thing. I ended up staying up to like midnight on Friday night, uh, cooking it in the oven. Cause I needed to just like get it more cooked than it was. Mm. Uh, then I did spit roast chickens and like drank just a couple too many beers and stopped paying attention to the chickens. <laughs> and then the coals kind of went out. And so the chickens, like everything else was ready and the chickens were basically raw. <laughs> um, so then I threw a bunch more coals into that, cooked the chickens, pulled the chickens off, cut the chicken in half, went great. It's cooked on the outside and still a little bit raw on the inside. So I had to like half all these chickens and then grill them basically to finish it. <laughs> and like everything turned out great and everyone loved it and the food was excellent. But I got to the end of it and was like, fuck, thank God that is over. Yeah. That was the most painful thing in the world. And I had this discussion with Stefan from Brisket and Brawn, good friend of the show. Uh, he was like, yeah, I don't understand why people get into smoking. It's, it's stupid. I love, like, I love eating it, but it's so bad. You just so much time standing around waiting and so many things that can go wrong. And yeah. Yeah. My first brisket attempt, I remember talking to you and Stefan about it, uh, you know, doing this snake method thing. Yeah. Uh, and I set it up at the gym. I spent so long like making this perfect dry rub, getting <laughs> everything perfect, spending ages meticulously laying out these coals for the perfect snake method. Yeah. Set it all up and uh, uh got it going and it was smelling amazing i'm like perfect you know i had this vision of going home coming back in the morning the whole gym smelling like heaven uh everyone ready for this perfectly cooked tender brisket uh and the the coals must have gone out about 20 minutes after i left yeah, yeah you just come back to a raw brisket yeah. so it came back to like a 
<laughs> I, I walked in, I'm like, doesn't smell in here. And I'm like, ah, oh, surely it's, it's just, you know, the, I left the garage door a little bit. Maybe it's just leaked out, felt the barbecue and it's stone cold. And I'm like, this is not Fuck. a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> the other day I, I, uh, sous vide a, a, uh, tomahawk, um, did it for four hours. Uh, it was a big one. It was like 1.3 kilos. Uh, seared it off perfectly, made all the perfect accompaniments. Uh, I thought, well, I don't have a plate big enough to put this thing on, so I'm going to use a chopping board. So I've got a chopping old chopping board. I would board have just that, eaten it like a fucking lamb cutlet. <laughs> I, I got an old chopping board out of the out of the cupboard, put it on, looked all perfect, picked up the chopping board to carry it to the other side of the kitchen, and this chopping board hasn't been used in like three or four years, and it snapped in half. The whole thing just <laughs> fucking flopped on the floor massive slap you know when it, when stuff like that happens yeah. and you just you freeze you just look at it in disappointment for like five yeah. minutes and you're yeah. staring at this thing um you know you're frozen in time but then a little dog runs over and you're like fuck i gotta pick it up before he gets it I still ate it it was fantastic it's just such a moment of disappointment yeah i fucking hate that oh, <clears throat> what a shit time you know the uh the beef ribs i'm gonna do today i'm actually gonna do with a do a coffee and chili rub um that normally like with ribs and brisket i'm just a like salt pepper garlic powder and onion powder kind of guy yeah uh but i did the last brisket i did for the gym i did with his coffee and chili rub uh where the prism coffee comes in handy uh and i just throw the stuff that i've got like ground for an espresso machine uh into that a bunch of chili powder a like a metric fuckload of salt um because when in doubt add more salt uh and like pepper and onion and garlic powder and cook it that way match it with coffee barbecue sauce and fucking life is good yeah did i send you that recipe i did didn't i you did you did a fear also mentioned that you sent it to him and he said it was the best barbecue sauce he's ever had in his entire life yeah so if you want an espresso barbecue sauce recipe send me a message on instagram it's but it is it's from the aaron franklin uh what's it called uh smoking meat a manifesto or something like that meat smoking manifesto something like that anyway google aaron franklin and it's you'll like get the his bible book. for smoking 100 it, it's the book i recommend everyone gets <laughs> if you want to learn about the incredibly frustrating process that is cooking meat really slowly with fire mm. we'll, we'll check the link in the show notes i don't actually know what show, what yeah. show notes are <laughs> or how to do that that's Sam, Sam's if you're job. listening yeah yeah, we need an Amazon affiliate link so we can get money every time people buy it. <laughs> Sell that shit out. Um, but you should, if you're going to do the coffee and chili rub thing, buy some coffee from our good friends at Prism. Absolutely. Use Prism uh, Peaks Peak Coffee for the discount at prism.co.au. What's the website? Dot com.au. God damn it, Thomas. Prism Coffee. Yeah. Anyway. That's excellent. Buy their coffee because it's delicious. How are you going with your machine? Yeah, fantastic. I'm using the grinder now that they sent me some beans. Mm. Uh, so I'm playing around with getting the perfect grind size. Yeah, nice. Uh, I'm playing around with using the single wall basket. Yeah. Uh, and having delicious affogatos every morning. <laughs> Such a child. Fantastic. How can I take this very adult beverage and make it into a child's plaything? I'll just add ice cream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I see no issue with that. Excellent. Uh, so what are we going to talk about from an actual... Actually, before we move on to today's real topic, I would like to raise issue with you using your executive assistant to send me messages to book in podcast times uh, late at night on a Thursday night. 
Well, right. you can blame the executive assistant because there is a strict no Thomas on phones on Thursday and Sunday nights. Uh, so I'm banned, uh, allegedly, because I'm a, a glued to my phone 24-7, essentially. Yeah, that, I think that's reasonable. For um, the purposes of business and definitely not scrolling through Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I got a message from uh, Thomas's other half at like 9.30 last night saying, yeah, Thomas will definitely be up for a podcast tomorrow. Yeah, yeah cool. I just realized I hadn't replied. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. I wish I was important enough to have a, an assistant, a live-in assistant. <laughs> uh, you do. He's just not old enough to use a phone yet. Oh, no. He's old enough to use a phone, but the only way he uses a phone is to take photos of his own nostrils. <laughs> Amazing. Just because you get a lot of like photos of two-thirds of his face because he's just looking at the thing, pressing the camera button repeatedly. It's great. <laughs> oh, cool. I have 700 selfies of you. That's great, dude. Thanks. Um, anyway. He, he's going to be an influencer just like his dad. <laughs> Don't tell his mum that. She'll hate it. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about something productive. Yeah. Not that meat smoking is not productive, but mm. let's talk about some powerlifting things. People yeah, well, liked we, our bench press episode, didn't Yeah, they? we got a really good response to that. Thank you very much for pushing us towards the ever-approaching 100,000 downloads. We are like a couple of uh, We're like 400 away. downloads off or something. It, we're like, we'll tick over it by Monday, if not when this episode comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So continue. I might just sit here and download all our episodes (laughs) several times. Continue to share with your friends. Put us on Instagram. We love that stuff. Yes, we Um, certainly do. So last time we had really, uh, we'd planned on speaking about bench completely, but we spent the whole time just talking about the intricacies of technique. Mm. Um, So kind of following on from that, I guess a a good place to continue the discussion is talking about like, uh maybe some of the programming considerations some of the accessory and stability considerations how's that sound sounds good to me where do you want to start um i think it's relevant to start uh by talking about the the programming implications when it comes to bench press because it does become a a little bit um uh interesting just because of the three lifts bench is going to produce the least amount of fatigue and yes as such we can handle the most volume with it how many, like, let's say we're talking about, you know, strength training as a conduit for powerlifting. Uh, so with the end goal of powerlifting, how many sort of, what's, what's your frequency of bench press that you typically program? I'd say it's like uh, at least twice a week, mm-hmm. generally, for, for most people. On the assumption that you're training at least three days a week, because mm-hmm. most of the people I coach are like three to four days a week. That's probably yep. the average. And I think that's the average for a lot of people. Uh, and so, yeah, generally I'm looking to get at least two bench press exposures in there of some variety. And then obviously the sort of accessory stuff that goes on, on top of that. Uh, but yeah, for exactly that reason, because in general, it's the one that people can handle a bit more volume, but also I think because of the precision requirements that we talked about at length in our last episode, it's also the one that if you spend a week not doing it, you then spend the first half of your session relearning everything and Mm. and finding your positions again. So, uh, I generally lean on a slightly more frequent approach for the average person for bench press because I think the skill aspect of it is important to practice more than Mm -hmm. anything else, especially early on. Yeah, Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure we've spoken at large about this, the the whole skill training 
uh, piece before, but when when you're the more skillful the endeavor, the more exposure you need to that thing, need for that thing. So like, let's look at something extremely skillful like golf versus lifting. It's like yep. golf you can you can swing every day. Yeah. Uh, if you have a <clears throat> if you have a tournament in the afternoon, you can practice in the morning with no detriment to your tournament. If anything, yep. with benefit to your tournament. Where yep. as in, in squatting, you know, if you're squatting every day, it's like yeah, you might improve the skill of squatting, but it produces so much fatigue that you're never going to create the adaptations you need to get bigger and stronger. Yeah. Um, bench is a little bit different in that sense because it is so skillful and there's a couple of extra layers that come with that. I think a, a big thing when it comes to uh, bench press is that the systems involved in putting together the, uh, I guess, the overall technique of bench is very unique to bench. Mm. So what I mean by that is like later on, we'll do episodes on squat and deadlift and, and their pathways of accessory and programming, uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, but when you look at something like a squat or a deadlift, you can do indirect variations which target the same systems you can do rdls and good mornings and leg presses and things like that which target aspects of that system with bench press you don't really take parts of that system and put it out into other movements with yep. the exception of something like an incline or a dumbbell press yeah uh, everything else is really training aspects of the system to go back into the overall technique if that makes sense it's not yeah, like yeah, you're, for sure. you're practicing your arch when you do uh a um, row or something like that you know yeah. it's, it's very unique to itself so the more exposure we have to it uh, the better we can strengthen our positions the better we get at the overall movement yeah it's that idea of um what's the dave tate's favorite term dynamic correspondence it's how well does the exercise that you're doing translate into the exercise that's the end goal mm-hmm. and in bench press that window is just way small yeah. you just have to spend a lot more time doing direct variations not just general strength stuff yeah so with that said um i'm in the same camp as you Uh, i generally only program two days a week even if the person is training five to six days a week um so most of my lifters are doing a four-day split where they're doing two uh bench days let's just call them bench days yeah doing two bench exposures per week um the reason i don't increase that if the uh overall Um, training frequency is increased is because i feel like when you add frequency you're not really necessarily always adding just quality Uh, yeah i'd rather have two really high quality sessions where you can beat yourself up with quantity rather than spreading that quantity out over the week and potentially impeding the quality of the movement yeah um that's just my philosophy that's not to say i've had i've run three days a week four days a week of benching with people and with myself very successfully at the moment as my philosophy goes um two days a week is is adequate yeah i generally if i'm gonna add a third session in it'll be quite a, a small relatively low volume exposure that's more about technical skill work than it is mm. anything else like it's not hey we're going to do a third upper body day it's here's some bench like you know triples or something like that done with the goal of technical perfection and practice more than driving training adaptations or anything like that so it's more like a yeah skill day than a, i would call it a training day is, is probably the the distinction i would make yeah so in uh, your typical uh you know two days of benching on average uh, for your lifters per week are both of those for a competition powerlifter or someone with the goal of competition powerlifting are both of those days full competition setup uh 
obviously it depends on how far away from a competition you are the essentially the closer i get the more of that total volume and total workload is going to come from just competition bench Mm. um further away from a comp i'm more inclined to do some slight variations on things i don't mind uh i've been using a lot recently like a very low incline bench like a sort of 15 to 20 degree incline bench um especially for people with a lot of like a really massive arch because it puts them in a position where they actually have to be kind of strong not just rely on the fact that their sternum's basically touching the bar when they unrack it Mm. Uh, so I lean on those sort of things further away from a competition to build a bit more of a general base. But there's, I very rarely go completely away from the competition movement in terms of variation. That's always going to be in there at some point because I think the practice element is, is the important part. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it'll be the second priority, like it won't be the first exercise for the day. We might do something else first and then go and do something like tempo work or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, most of it leans on bench press because like you've said before, if you want to change something, you've got to change it with the thing that you're trying to change, not something else. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, for me, it's it's a very similar sort of philosophy. One thing that uh, I'm uh, increasingly becoming... Uh, more and more appreciative of is the fact that in your full competition setup like think of your goal with with arching with retracting your shoulders as hard as you can not only is it about supporting the strongest possible position part of supporting the strongest possible position is reducing the range as much as possible yeah and if we if we work in uh constant uh in constant positions that are aiming to reduce range potentially we decrease the stability potential of our shoulders uh, and that's going to be pretty detrimental over time um that doesn't mean you can't do competition setup every time you bench absolutely uh but uh one way of you know forcing yourself to have very similar principles to your competition setup but benefit that increase in range is doing things like a slightly reduced arch or a close grip or uh, probably one of my favorite uh, strategies for this is like a bent bar a duffalo or a buffalo bar yeah uh, to do the exactly the same setup but increase the range you're taking your shoulders through just yep. look at it as like a deficit deadlift but yep. bench press deficit bench press yeah and yeah, I think they're super effective. I think it's the sort of thing that, especially the bent bar thing, you have to be very good at it in order mm. to do that well. Because I think if you're like a deficit deadlift, just arbitrarily adding more range is not actually going to help you. Absolutely. What you've yeah. got to be able to do is add more range that you can control and still be in the same position and then actually get the carryover from it. Because if you're in a spot where the only thing you get out of that extra range is a whole bunch of like rounding of your shoulders in order to get that bar to your chest, well, then that's not actually going to help you very much mm. in your competition setup. So I think... It's always worth caveating those sort of things with the idea that in order to get the most out of that, you have to be pretty good at it to um, to actually facilitate that transfer of, of training. Yeah, definitely. It ranges. It, it raises an interesting um, an interesting conversation, and I've seen this now quite a few times. Um, you don't see it that often, but you do see it depending on you know the the kind of people that you work with more often than not you're going to see this in uh, petite flexible females where the uh the structural advantage 
uh, of a massive arch kind of outweighs the mechanical advantage of leg drive. Yep. So the, these um, these people, because uh, there are males that get this as well, with gigantic arches. Yeah, uh, really feet short underneath range. their shoulders. and yeah. yeah, really short range of motion, max legal width grip, rely so much on that structural advantage that they really start to miss out on the benefits of what you were talking about with the slight incline of just kind of brute strength. Of yep. applying brute strength into those systems yep. that are you know benefiting from that structural advantage so for people like that i spend a lot of time not doing competition style benching like yep. doing slightly closer grips doing no leg drive doing no arch sort of benching um doing lots of dumbbell press i really hate the notion of um strength ratios of like you know your max squat is this therefore your front squat should be about this yeah but one strength ratio that I don't really articulate to many people, uh, I keep in my head, but it's a good litmus test is like for these people with these crazy arches, if they can't bench, if they can't dumbbell press 50% of their max bench for sets of sort of eight to 10, we know there's a bit of a strength discrepancy. Again, that's not a set in stone rule, but it seems mm. to be anecdotally holding up. So what I mean by that is, is if your max bench is 100, 50% of that is 50, so 25 kilos per hand. If you can bench press 100, but you can't do 25 kilo dumbbells on a flat dumbbell press for eight to 10 reps, like if you're struggling to do three or four, we know there's such a, yeah. a discrepancy in the strength aspect and you're relying heavily on that sort of structural advantage. We need to bring up those structures. And once you can bring up the strength in those structures and then apply it to a ridiculous arch, just watch your bench fly through the roof. Yeah, exactly that. And that's the thing where I think some people, especially people who get into powerlifting in the last sort of five or six years, where the this discussion around improving your technical skill and all of that is much more prevalent now than it was when you and I started lifting. It was just about just get stronger. Mm. Now everyone, the pendulum's almost swung in the other direction and people are way more concerned about doing everything technically perfectly which I think it can be detrimental in the long term because it reduces your overall strength base because you're so concerned about, and you know, you and I both are guilty of preaching technical skill and all of those sort of things. But at a certain point, you do just have to be fucking strong. Yeah. And if you're in a position where your, especially your bench press hasn't gone anywhere for a while and you are one of those people who's big arch, very good at, uh, getting a really short range of motion but you're struggling to make any progress like maybe you're just not strong enough maybe mm. what you need to be is just overall much stronger and then refine your abilities and be able to execute it in the in the competition setup yeah it creates this interesting paradigm you see it in any any lift where someone is a specialist in something so mm. you see this especially in bench specialists and especially in uh in deadlift specialists where that lift becomes your lift like you've got this crazy arch this incredibly short range of motion you're the bencher yeah um, so you stop thinking or you, you create this illusion in your head that your bench is really good and you become blind to your lack of progress yeah um, and you lose strategies to make that progress like you see it more often with deadlifters because the deadlift ends up being the greatest lift out of the total yeah you know, with a, with a bencher your, your bench is often you know smaller than your squat and deadlift even if it's really good with your deadlift it's really high and you get these people that you know are pulling 350 but they're pulling 350 for five years it's like okay you're a yeah. deadlifter but you're a shit deadlifter because you're not making any progress yeah yeah exactly 
it's very easy to do that with bench by maximizing the skill yeah uh, and just like you were saying actually it I, I was uh, scrolling while I was waiting for you, and Dr. Pat Davidson had, had posted a thing of like brain oh, versus the, balls. Oh, fuck, man. Yeah. I saw that this morning and it got the me. The brain to it, balls ratio. It's like yeah. too much brains and you're making no gains, too yeah. much balls and you hurt all the time. You need a bit of both. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and it's a funny thing. Hey, I like it's something I've only really become aware of in the last couple of years is that potentially it's gone the other way like we've we've swung the discussion to the other end of the pendulum <clears throat> excuse me and so gone are the days where like people just come in and just fucking train really hard and just work incredibly hard to get to a point where they have made some strength gains like we've almost got people who are far more concerned about like oh i'm not sure i can do that many sets because it's touching my mrv and like i can't spend too long on my mrv because my sleep's not perfect and like yeah i think and i'm as guilty of this as anyone else but i think at a certain point like sometimes it pays to be a bit stupid and to Mm. like turn your brain off a little bit and to work really hard because i think that a lot of people are missing that. A lot of people, especially who've got into powerlifting through things like podcasts like ours and, you know, have high quality coaches and all of those sort of things, which is excellent. It's a great way to learn a lot. Mm. But also like I put a lot of value in the time I spent in gyms doing really dumb things and like trying dumb programs and doing stuff like that where it's not optimal, but what you can learn is what not optimal feels like. Mm. If you've only ever been exposed to optimal, then suddenly anything outside of that feels really foreign. And so yeah. you, you can feel like you're not making any progress because it's not perfect. For sure, for sure. You really, um, yeah, you, you live in a padded room. You, you don't develop grit. It's yeah. like, um, you know, people who have started out in their lifting journey in our gyms, uh, yeah. you know, where every, or there's so many plates that are calibrated and so many bars that are perfect and not bent and not smooth. Mm. Uh, you really, you're like, oh, okay. I've said this on this podcast before and I have no shame in saying it again. I, I'm so fascinated to observe people in my gym. I have, I think in my Gold Coast gym, I have three or four Alico competition bars and um, Alico competition powerlifting bars have a little red sticker on them. Yeah. Um, and I've got like, one or two with red stickers and one or two where the red sticker has come off and to observe someone change out the competition bar with no sticker for the competition bar with a sticker like there's any difference in quality it just it's fascinating to me or you know alico competition bar versus alico power uh training bar the difference is a little white cap uh, the tensile strength, which you're never going to know unless you'd squat over 500 kilos. And the knurling is like ever so slightly different. You wouldn't <laughs> notice yeah. unless I told you it was different. And people will walk across the gym, like to the complete other side of the gym <laughs> to change the bars. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. Oh, like I think of sifting through all the shitty bars at my commercial gym that I went to, to find my favorite bar, which was slightly, which was actually less shittier bent. than the other yeah. ones because yeah. it was, but it was less bent. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've like laid six barbells on the ground next to each other and rolled them all along the floor <laughs> until I found the one that was the straightest one. Like it just, it's a different world and it like, it's great. You, you get to be exposed to world-class equipment in a way that we never would have dreamed of 15 mm. years ago. But I do think you lose some of the, yeah, the grit, the resilience that comes with training in suboptimal conditions. And 
yeah, I think I think you get a bit spoiled. Like without wanting to sound too much like a dickhead, you just get a little bit spoiled for choice. You get a little bit spoiled for the the atmosphere and the you know like it's a very different ball game squatting 300 400 kilos in a commercial gym that's playing pop music on the stereo with a bunch of like people doing really terrible bicep curls and machine work than it is to come into a powerlifting gym like ours where the music's loud and everyone's training hard and maybe not everyone's super strong but everyone's pushing in the same direction that that contrast is very interesting yeah yeah, it's funny, like Pavlov's conditioning. I would always have really good sessions when I walked in and Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus was on. And I'd always have really shit sessions when I walked in. And Taylor Swift, I can't remember the name of the song, the one where she starts off like um, uh, with the sign in the window. You're on the phone with your girlfriend. She's so sad. She's going up about something. Please sad. never do that again. Sorry. Um, anyway, we've gotten way off track. We're supposed to be talking about bench press. Um, one really interesting thing that I wanted to bring up with, with bench, especially if you're looking at like bench only sort of programming, um, in technical terms, when it comes to programming, you'll, you'll hear or be exposed to terms like microcycle, mesocycle, macrocycle, and look at it like this. A microcycle is a week of training. Mesocycle is like a block and macrocycle is a series of blocks put over time towards a specific goal, right? So the microcycle being a week of training, our brains are inclined to immediately go to a calendar week, seven days. Yep. When you're running bench only or when you're building bench into your programming, because of that recovery aspect, because it's not building as much fatigue, theoretically, you can have your microcycles be shorter than seven days. Mm. So you can have more exposures to bench press over the course of, say, a uh, uh, mesocycle, I'd say a four or five week block, than you would if you had the other lifts in. And this makes programming for bench only kind of interesting. Um, so for me, when I'm building programs, I go off uh, certain rep ranges per week for main lifts according to percentages. So for yep. example, if I'm building a hypertrophy, percent, uh, a hypertrophy block or a body composition block, uh, I use the percentages between 65 and 80% and rep ranges of between 30 and 60. Uh, but sometimes, you know, my bench program... Sorry, that's total reps? Yes, total yep. reps per week. And th- that's not set in stone, you know? It's not like yeah, yeah. 61 reps, you fucking a mental case or... Same yeah, thing yeah. with the percentages. They're just general guidelines, right? Yeah. Um, but sometimes, you know, with bench, I'll exceed that if I have like one session that's five by eight uh, and then a second close grip session, which is four by eight, that, that might exceed the 60 reps. But it still falls within the principles if we're looking at it in that sense of microcycles and we're spreading it out a little bit more just because of the fact that you recover a little bit better. Makes programming for bench, you can get creative with it. You can uh, yeah. play around with it. And it's, uh, yeah, that's all I have to say. excellent so when doing something like a bench only program where you're let's make the assumption that you're training bench only because you either have no legs or you have an inability to train your lower body where do you go when it comes to uh like accessory work and things like that to fill the other training time around just doing bench press yeah i mean like there's a lot of individual consideration with that because a lot of people doing bench only are doing some extra like leg work let's yep. assuming this person is not doing any extra leg work honestly it's not that different to how i'd program it with a three lift i would add a day or two extra of upper body stuff but generally i categorize it similar to how you would uh, a um a bodybuilding sort of split so 
for example, I think of a guy in, in Melbourne, his name's Brett Walland, who I've coached for quite a while. He's benched 230 at 100 kilos. He's a really strong bencher. Um, and he runs bench-only programs. The overall volume is not dissimilar to what I'd give a three-lift person, but how I structure it is uh, he would go, you know, a bench day that has a chest and tricep focus and then a secondary uh, assistance day, which is just pretty much shoulders. Yeah. Uh, and then a third day, which is bench as well, but back and biceps. So he's just doing essentially most of the time doing some sort of bodybuilding split with a high focused on, on bench. Yep. And I think that's pretty reasonable it kind of make it makes sense right and i think because you're in a position where you're not generating as much fatigue with heavy squats and heavy deadlifts you can spend a bit more time doing that sort of fluffier end of bodybuilding stuff because you've just got more training time on your hands mm. and it's all the sort of stuff that you can do with a relatively high frequency and not experience a detrimental uh impact upon your performance yeah, one thing, like, especially if you write your own programming, that that's easy to lose sight of when you, you hear people like us talking. You know, a lot of the reasons we arrive at programming certain volumes and intensities and uh, amounts of accessory work is based on the fact that we do this all the time. Uh, yes. So we start to get a really good handle of how much volume the average person is going to handle uh, within a, a period of time. So my goal is uh, most of my programming is delivered in four-week blocks. My goal is to build as much uh, fatigue in that four weeks to the point where you need a deload in week five. That's the yeah. idea. It's like build volume. Week four is overreaching. Week five is deload. Uh, and so why I wouldn't necessarily all of a sudden go to a four-day bench split and play around with uh, crazy volumes and play around with changes in intensity and everything like that is because I've got a predictable measure based yeah. on coaching thousands of people in a very similar way based on my understanding and knowledge of these different phases of programming. So that's where I start. And then if I'm finding this person's handling the volume too easily in four weeks, let's bump it up. If I find that they're handling the intensity or whatever, let's play with one of those metrics or if i find that they're not handling it let's play around with it you know yeah um, it, there's always a starting point it's 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 uh, a little bit different when you're coming from our perspective of having coached lots and lots of people when you're doing it yourself there is a lot more trial and error the yeah the piece of advice and i'm sure you'll agree with this is start at a starting point but be consistent with it don't chop yes. and change every couple of weeks you need to you know build some data over time to really work out what's going on yeah, one, exactly. one week or one block of training is not enough data to, no, to really make big changes off of. That's exactly the point you're making is that we just have more data mm. because we do it like we just get to experiment on a much bigger scale yeah. and have recognized those patterns over time and been able to refine things. Um, what is your thinking around uh, exposure to like heavy singles and very comp specific practice? Are you a fan of doing that regularly over time or are you much more in the camp of just wait until it matters and do it at the tail end of a training block? Yeah, far more in the camp of, of wait, wait until it matters. Everyone knows my catch cry of like your technique uh, under, under the next time you go to max out is going to be the average of what you've done in training. Uh, my philosophy, my understanding of, of peaking of high percentage training uh, is that you while you're doing those sort of percentages and loads um, and that low volume that comes with that, you're not getting any bigger and you're not getting any stronger. So why are we spending time doing that? Yeah, um, you could argue the skill uh, is important to bench. You could argue that it's not creating that much fatigue, and so there's not as much harm. And I would I would agree with that. I don't think there's any issue in 
doing it provided that you're you're structuring your training where it's consistent otherwise like if you want to do a single every week sure go for it keep it sub max but make sure the rest of your training under those singles is matching up to a specific phase and a specific goal don't do some sort of like lane norton bullshit fat hypertrophy program where you're doing like heavy singles one day and then you know sets of 12 another day it's what's the point you just train you're training your marathon your sprint at the same time focus on one thing rather than being shit at a bunch of things yeah so that's that's the end of things that i'm more inclined to go with It, it seems to be in my experience more relevant to smaller females than it is anything else but uh often those sort of people in my experience have done well with a regular exposure to a moderate intensity single or two um i think part of it's actually just a mental thing like a confidence building uh understanding what that weight feels like in your hands in a reg on a regular basis um and and part of it is refining the skill set is being able to able to stay in check with how the reps that you're doing translate into how you're going to perform it at a heavier weight i think uh less experienced people are sometimes guilty of checking out after the first couple of reps of a set and that's where having like a a top single or a, a top couple of singles for the day where you're warming up with the intention of hitting this single or two singles and then going back down and doing the work like you said that matches with the training cycle that you're in Mm. um i find that people get a lot of benefit out of that regular exposure um i think the less experience you are uh, sorry the more experience you are the less likely you are to need something like that because you just have that more robust framework for how you think about your technical skill and so you can just make that conversion much simpler as the training block progresses Mm. Uh, but i think for some there is definitely some value in a in a regular exposure to like you said it's a sub max single like i'm talking you know singles at eight eight and a half rpe like it's not much more than that it's you know never going to be more than like 92 percent or something like that Mm. uh because it doesn't need to be it's just exposing you to that stimulus on a regular basis i think can be very beneficial as long as you're doing it like you said with the right intent yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's not I'm testing my bench press every week. It is I am practicing a high intensity bench press every week. And I think when you can take it that that frame of mind into it, it will be a lot better. Yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, I, I completely agree. It just becomes a risk reward ratio thing. Yep. And with the kind of experience level that you're talking about, the risk is almost negligible. It's almost yep, not exactly. there because that person's instabilities, that person's uh, technical failures are going to protect them from loading up their system to the point where they're going to get hurt look at a big juicy geared up male uh doing a a heavy single under fatigue now we're talking a a risk that potentially becomes a little bit too high to warrant keeping it in exactly Um, but yeah like, like you said it's just a matter of the application and a matter of thinking about like uh you know is this actually helping is this hindering um and if it's not hindering doesn't necessarily matter that much if it's not helping if you can justify it yeah exactly and, and i, I say think not helping i mean not helping in terms of like overall strength and size. yeah yeah exactly there's, there's going to be a whole bunch of other benefits yeah well like the mental component more than anything else just the regular exposure to something that is as we've discussed over this episode and the last one a very foreign movement to a lot of people mm. and something that can take a lot of practice to do very well and so having an opportunity to practice that more regularly in my mind is a very useful thing 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you bring it up. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear why you would do that uh, specific with bench. Would you do it with the other two lifts? Or are you saying specific uh, with bench because it's low risk, low fatigue? I'd, I'd say both. It, again, it depends on the context of the person. Um, I'm more inclined to do it on bench year round or very close to year round because the risk reward is skewed in the direction that I'm happy with. Mm-hmm. I think when you're doing sets of eight in a squat, you probably don't need to be doing heavy singles in the same way. Some people I still use it for. It's a much more individual process for the um, the the individual athlete rather than a, a generic sort of approach. Um, I think you can just get away with benching heavy singles in a bench way more regularly than you can squatting and deadlifting. Like you said, the fatigue's just not there on the same level. I definitely have used a, a top single or a top something like that for squats and deadlifts, but not quite with the same frequency that I would a bench press. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more often than not, though, it's about uh, addressing the individual's confidence more than anything else and their ability to just be exposed to what a heavy weight feels like is often, I think, very beneficial for the the sort of moderate experience lifter who like has done a little bit of training but hasn't really pushed the envelope of what max effort lifting looks like so exposing them to that like the top end of sub max occasionally is i think very useful from a a mindset standpoint Mm -hmm. um but yeah i certainly would use it less frequently with squats and deadlifts than i would bench press yeah cool and so another question do you do you find any use for tools such as slingshot and board pressing not necessarily together uh i haven't we've got a set of boards at the gym that haven't been touched in years i got so much dust off them when we were doing cleaning (laughs) of the gym pre reopening just because they'd been sitting under our dumbbell rack for years Hmm. i don't really use board pressing in the same way uh, as perhaps I used to, even for a shirted bench, I don't think there's a lot of benefit from board work in the shirt. I think at some point there's maybe some benefit from some board work and I have experienced some board work for training equipped just to have another opportunity to handle something pretty heavy at the top end. Mm. Uh, but for the most part, I don't really touch boards with a raw lifter. I don't mind a slingshot. Um, most people aren't good enough at bench press to get anything out of the slingshot because they just end up using it as a band-aid solution for their inability to control their shoulders in the bottom position mm-hmm. more than they do actually transferring it into how you would bench press regularly. Mm-hmm. So I think it definitely has some benefit, but it is often just butchered by people who are more concerned about using it as an excuse to put way more weight on the bar than they are about using it as a training tool to benefit their raw bench. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of slingshot work with that application, with the yep. application of we are using this as a conduit towards a better bench, yep. not as an overload tool. Yes. Um, if we are using it as an overload tool, it's not to overload the weight on the bar relative to your strength. It's to overload uh, the position. It's to overload yep. the, especially the bottom position in that yep. transition point, which is where you're going to lose it in a bench. Yep. You are going to fail a bench because your shoulders become unstuck. So it's about setting your shoulders perfectly, using a weight heavier than your shoulders can normally handle because I would say 99% of the time in 
in most people, and 99% of the time across the board for bench press, the uh, the technical failure that occurs is the uh, loss of integrity through that shoulder position. And a yep. slingshot is a great way to be able to handle weight and focus on that at the same time. Exactly. Uh, that's where I'd use that. Just for the sake of lifting heavier, waste of time. Like, yep. why? Why? Yep. If, if that worked really well, then why wouldn't we do always, you know, reverse band squats and deadlifts? It's not very popular, but chucking a slingshot is just... Uh, you know, low barrier to entry. You just that's also on. a great way to stroke your own ego. Yeah, board presses. The only time I suggest any of my lifters use them uh, is if we are working around that sort of nasty arm pain to the point where they're oh, yeah. missing out on bench volume. Yeah, altogether. Um, that's when I might implement a board press. But in terms of like help with strength, help with uh, position, anything like that, I don't see a great deal of value with them. That's not to say that they're stupid at all. Um, no. Uh, if you can justify fitting any exercise into your system and you yeah. feel like it has some sort of benefit or carryover, by all means, go and do it for sure. Yeah, I, it just doesn't fit with your system. Yeah, I feel the same way with spot press. It's like, why, why are we training people to get good an inch off the chest where the most volatile place, the hardest place to stabilize, the place where you're going to lose position most likely in the benches on the chest? Why aren't we yep. practicing down there? Why aren't we increasing the range to get good at, you know, stabilizing through the range we need to stabilize in? Um, so do you do stuff so i moved away from like a spotter style bench to more like a i describe it as a t-shirt pause bench uh where i want you to pause with the bar touching your t-shirt but not your chest yeah to differentiate between a spotter bench being like an inch off your chest i want you to touch your chest and be in a touch position but touch it so lightly and under such control that you're forced to hold that really stable shoulder position which i find is especially beneficial for people who have a tendency to like let things sink just a little bit coming on their chest um but yeah how do you feel about that sort of stuff that's that's how i teach benching i yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah the language that i use when i'm teaching someone how to bench is imagine your chest is made out of glass and you don't want to uh, you don't want to break it yeah and touch your chest super 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 light uh, and you know that follows on to why i'm a fan of increased range work because with that sort of light style touching um, when the weight inevitably gets heavier and that control aspect becomes difficult if you're not uh, you know stable enough you don't have the control to stabilize when that weight wants to push you down a little bit further and depress into your chest a little bit more you're going to come unstuck in that bottom position um, yep. so that increased range work is good for building resilience and sort of i guess stability endurance through those structures and through those ranges so do you do anything around like long pauses things like that no not necessarily yeah okay not necessarily i i think they're a great idea yep. yeah I'm, I'm far more a fan of tempo stuff yeah um, so i use things like three one two tempo so you're controlling it down pausing for a second or two and then holding that tension while you're pressing up slowly um, yeah because yeah so i i like, lean more on like a three zero two or a three zero three where i don't actually want you to pause because i want i want you to be able to really focus on actually controlling the transition really well mm -hmm. um but yeah i like we're of the same thought bubble i think on that yeah for sure absolutely um, um we th I think we briefly touched last week on uh, like rows and that sort of stuff for benching. So I don't think we necessarily need to go into that too much. Yeah, I think the biggest take home message, uh, 
Because again, I'm I'm more than confident to say this over and over and over that rows and lap pull downs are the most overrated and poorly used accessory in powerlifting. Um, are they important? Absolutely fucking yes. Should you be doing them? Absolutely fucking yes. But think about what you're trying to achieve with it. And uh, for improving your bench press, uh, you're thinking about is my shoulder in the right position while my shoulder goes into full extension? Yep. Is my scap holding the right position? Uh, while my shoulder goes into full extension so range is key position of the shoulder is key that's what you need to be focusing on with your rows don't use implements that limit your range we spoke about that last week as well um yeah grip width thoughts uh if you can't touch the edges of the rack with your pinkies you're too narrow (laughs) um no i i think I think like the discussion around people moving too quickly towards technical perfection and not just getting strong, I think a lot of people go too quickly to maximum legal grip width Mm -hmm. without considering how and why they should go to that point. I don't Mm -hmm. think everyone needs to go to maximum width benching, especially early in the piece. I think potentially over time you should be able to execute it at that position because that's sort of the ultimate expression of controlling your shoulders because you know the the further that humerus gets from your midline the harder it is to stabilize that position so it's going to be easier to stabilize your your shoulders in a slightly narrower grip than it would be a max legal grip Mm -hmm. uh so potentially over time you should be working towards that but i think too many people go well i'll just fucking go all the way out and just learn to bench from there I, i wouldn't necessarily go straight to that though Mm -hmm. yeah cool 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 yeah grip grip width is an interesting thing because it's 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 a secondary discussion we shouldn't be talking about how wide your grip should be because ultimately it's about uh can you stabilize your shoulders through the range that you're traveling through just like you know how wide should your hip uh, uh, your stance be when you squat well it's about stabilizing your hips while you go through that range yeah um the narrow you, you, it's just about understanding the implications of either direction. The wider you go, the more exposed your shoulder is, the more control and stability you need to create. Yeah. Uh, the narrower you go, of course, you are, you know, automatically creating that by body approximation, just things hitting other things. Yep. Um, so you're naturally more stable. However, you need to travel your shoulders through more range and therefore you need to stabilize through that extra range. On top of that, when you go with a narrow grip, you're also starting to bias uh, potentially weaker muscle groups like your front delts versus your pecs. Uh, yep. So it's not to say that max legal is the goal for everyone. Uh, I would say that most males will end up with their grip being between pinky and index finger on the rings. Yep. And most females will end up being between uh, pinky just inside the rings and uh, middle finger on the rings, just based on you know males being slightly wider, broader, and uh, yep. you know having exactly. a wider birth there. The, the, probably the dumbest advice, uh, I wouldn't say no, let me take that back. It's not the dumbest advice, but it's something weird that you might see is the idea of joint stacking that your wrist should be perfectly over your elbow doesn't make a great deal of sense it would make a great deal of sense if the power coming from the bench press was being derived from your elbow uh, but yep. it's not it's being derived yep. by the muscles around your shoulder if that's how it works then uh, by that logic we should have a perfectly straight shin when we do a squat and a deadlift and uh that is wait just- we're not deadlifting with vertical shins now no. i'm confused absolutely not 
yeah so you know understanding that um you know grip width is not just about like wider is better narrow is better there's yeah. a whole bunch of factors that are going to influence where you should be uh gripping exactly and it's it's something that you need to address in a gradual process because just going getting into powerlifting be like well okay now i'm going to try and touch my asshole with my shoulder blades and bring my index finger just outside the ring so I get told to bring it in every time I go to a competition like that's not necessarily the best way to go when it comes to improving your bench press yes best way to touch your asshole is with your finger right I don't or two think, fingers <laughs> I don't think there's a great deal extra we need to go into uh, in this no episode. I think that covers most of what we need to talk about there's like more minutiae that we could discuss but it's getting you know to the point where if you want to discuss that just reach out or sign up yep. for coaching or something like that yeah um, i agree thank you very much for listening to another wonderful yes. episode we thank love you, you our fans and don't forget to buy some delicious coffee from our good friends yeah prism coffee and here. that's about it make yourself a delicious affogato or be an adult and just don't eat ice cream for breakfast with your coffee because that's really what that's really what you're doing Thomas. he's a destroyer of fun never grow up alright see you next time